Hi there. Thanks for joining us. I'm Julie Kenville, and this is Health Matters on CJD 800. Today, we hear from a man who's dedicated his life to raising funds to find a cure for cancer. And 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of the creation of insulin. This incredible treatment has given life to diabetics, but why is it that one in three Canadians now lives with diabetes? Our experts will discuss what warning signs you should watch out for. But first, COVID-19 cases continue to rise in the province. Our hospitals are full. This morning, yet again, I've learned of another Montreal business leader who has lost his battle to COVID. He was a loving father and a loving husband. Uh, personally, I'm emotionally drained by this pandemic. I really want it to end. And I'm not even working on the front lines. I, I feel especially strongly um, about the support we need to provide to our frontline workers. Dr. Peter Goldberg is head of the Department of Critical Care at the MUHC. Thank you so much, Dr. Goldberg, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us what the state of the ICU is right now at the MUHC? Well, between the two centres, the uh, Glen site and the general, we have uh, five or six uh, COVID patients um, in the ICU. Um, at various states of illness. Um, Dr. Goldberg, how does that compare with wave one of the pandemic? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because it's been our observations that we're not seeing the same inundation that we experienced in COVID, uh, the first wave, as opposed to the numbers in the community, which seem to be rising at an alarming rate, um, we're not seeing uh, that, that translation into the ICU, which is really quite welcome. So how do you explain that? Well, um, I'm not sure I'm the exact person to uh, answer that, but from what I've uh, read is that perhaps... Uh, from the data that I've seen from the, the Quebec uh, government sites is that many of the uh, people becoming infected are younger. Uh, they clearly and thankfully don't uh, become um, as sick as um, elderly people. Uh, most of the patients that we've encountered in the ICU continue to be in the same age range that they were in the first wave in the ages of 60s and 70s. Uh, thankfully, we haven't had uh, perhaps any or certainly many patients um, in their 40s or certainly in their 30s. So it may be hitting a younger demographic, which is unfortunate for their potential to, trans to transmit to the elderly patients, but certainly they themselves don't, be, don't seem to be coming down with the same severity of illness that uh, older people do. Dr. Goldberg, take us back to the beginning of the pandemic. Now, the hospitals, of course, had pandemic response plans, but we knew virtually nothing about the specific virus. So how did you personally feel when you were confronted with those first COVID patients? Um, the anxiety level was high amongst the physicians. The nurses certainly were really the front line. The respiratory therapists, another, another group of frontline workers, uh, everybody in the ICU, everyone in the hospital, and certainly in the ICU, very high level of anxiety, concern for themselves, for their own safety and health. Uh, the drama is going on in each uh, individual patient's room. Um, and um, for going home to their families, uh, the children, uh, parents, whatever. So 
it was really a very anxiety-provoking time on so, on so many different levels. Did you get any time to rest this summer? Yeah, I think we did. Um, that was really welcome, for certainly for the nurses. Again, the nurses really take the brunt of this. The physicians uh, certainly uh, take um, some of that uh, load, but not to the same degree, the, continu- the continuous exposure um, that the nurses do. So we all took some time off, uh, got outside, um, the nurses, I think uh, the administration did a good job by giving nurses, uh, making sure nurses had some time off, uh, some, some vacation time, because uh, we knew that this was going to come up in some form again and we needed to recharge. And so I think we did. I don't think it was enough. I think there's certain, certain uh, certainty, as you mentioned in your intro, of, uh, of just the fatigue, um, just a deep-seated fatigue. Now, you conduct a lot of research as well as caring for patients. Um, What are some of those remaining unanswered questions that you were facing with COVID patients in the ICU? Well, um, certainly uh, insofar as the ICU patients, um, uh, we've had the introduction of steroids, which perhaps has made this um, less a virulent presentation at the present moment. Um, we've had some antivirals, not as really not as significant as game changer as one would have hoped. Although I think we anticipated that they would not be, um, and so uh, the therapies uh, for patients who have the infection, um, we have um, uh, limitations in therapy, and we have uh, really a limitation in understanding the basic pathophysiology of, uh, in this case, viral infections. And so we need to better understand, we talk about patients having the so-called cytokine storm, uh, which is um, probably a real, real entity, but other patients have, in fact, just the opposite, and they don't respond well. And we need to better delineate those patients because the therapies are quite antithetical one to the other. And so we need to more basically understand the pathophysiology. And, of course, outside of the ICU is the vaccine, which hopefully, based on the latest, uh, certainly press reports, um, is going to be a potential game changer, although we need to await the peer-reviewed journal articles to really look at the data carefully. Now, what are your some some of your greatest challenges right now in this wave two? Well, we're we're looking south, and we see what's going on to the ICU in the United States, uh, in, in Europe, hearing about lack of beds, uh, worrying about even in Ontario the uh, the crunch for beds in Ontario in the ICU, and we're wondering why this is not happening here. Is it because uh, the government was proactive in? in trying to turn around the CHSL days, which were very much a, 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 a source of our patients in the first wave. Um, we're not sure, but that is still um, anxiety-provoking for us, trying to make plans for going forward and knowing uh, we can't sort of ignore what's going on in the community, saying this is going to potentially spill over. So I don't think the community should take a great amount of solace in the fact that the ICUs and the hospitals are not bursting at its seams and say, well, we can continue to do and continue to have these high rates of of transmission. 
because it's really not breaking our health care system as the experts said it would do. Uh, we need to uh, try to bring those rates down and be thankful that we haven't yet um, um, breached the um, limits of the hospital capacities. If our listeners wanted to help you, Dr. Goldberg, and help the team on uh, in the ICU unit, how could they do that? What are what are some of the things that you need right now? Well, I, to my previous comment, wear masks, stay socially distant, wash your hands. Let's cut down the the transmission in the community because that's ultimately where it could come from. If we if uh, we're, I think, very fortunate here at the moment not to be um, being uh, put upon in the hospitals or in the ICUs, but certainly to guarantee that it won't come to pass, we need to cut down the the prevalence in the community. And the only way to do that from the public health officials, as uh, and with what I understand from reading the literature, is that um, these three sort of simple, simple practices um, should be followed. And if we cut down that rate in the community, it can't possibly go into our hospitals. So that's what I would ask uh, my um, uh, everyone who's listening. Uh, just that's what they need to do, and that's what they should do for themselves and for their friends and their co-citizenry. Dr. Peter Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us on Health Matters. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Coming up next on Health Matters, it was golfing that helped him discover something was wrong with his health, and now he's using it to give back. I'm Julie Kenville. You're listening to Health Matters on CJD 800. Golf helped my next guest discover something was wrong. Dan Klimas tried to swing a golf club and just couldn't. His right arm was swollen. After consulting doctors, he was diagnosed with stage 4, grade 3, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Dan Klimas, thank you so much for joining us. Hello there. Now, you were diagnosed in 1999. Had you even heard about uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma before you were diagnosed? Not at all. I mean, you're 39 years old. You don't really have any knowledge of what uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is, what Hodgkin's lymphoma is. Um, The diagnosis hits you like a sledgehammer. Um, Now you're going to start a journey. Uh, It was numbing. Um, I was a very active person. I never had illness in my life. Uh, Our family was all healthy. Um, We never experienced this at all. And then when we found out that it's stage four, grade three, we had no clue what it meant. Just finding out that stage four of four and grade three of three are not very good. You know, that was the bottom line. When we did a little research on it, we found out that the prognosis for something like that, the survival rate was less than 30% for three years. So uh, to say the least, it was not a great start to another journey that we're on. Now, Dan, you're saying we. Um, Tell us about your family at the time. Um, My wife and I, uh, we have no children, but we have a very close uh, immediate family and friends network. We're very private people. Um, So this hit us all like a ton of bricks. Uh, And to say that they were as shocked as I was um, is an understatement. Um, The good thing is that we all believed that we could go through it. And if we go through it together, um, we'll find, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel. But we had no clue what to expect. It was absolutely zero expectation, and we had no idea what this journey was going to bring us. You're known for having a particularly positive attitude. How hard was it for you to stay positive during that period of time? I really had no choice. I mean, the, the, if you weren't going to be positive, 
the alternatives were not the best. So we had many ups and downs. Um, there was always another option to look at. Um, I believed in the staff and the doctors. Uh, we were very confident in the work they were doing, uh, the way they explained things, even though to a layman they may not have made sense. But when you talk to them, they explain things a little bit better, and you understand what their ultimate goal was. It was to give me um, a quality of life and get the cancer under control. There was no false promise of we're going to cure it, we're going to get you uh, get it out of the body. It was just to get you a good quality of life and let's get it under control. So under that pretense, we all believed that we were doing the right thing. Now, you were one of the first patients to ever receive a stem cell transplant, um, and it was done at the Royal Victoria Hospital. How did it feel getting such a um, a new treatment? Were you concerned? Were you worried? You know, originally I wasn't, and it didn't even cross my mind because, again, you're going through a process that you're, you're believing everything that the doctors and the specialists are trying to tell you. So I went into it with the knowledge that this could be good at the end. Um, uh, we thought it would be a great way to a success. Where it really hit me, Julie, was in 2007. Uh, I participated in a celebration of life at the Royal Victoria Hospital. They did a, a reception for patients who had received stem cell transplants and um, in the reception they gave tags to uh, patients, they gave tags to uh, staff and they gave tags to family members. On the patient's tag there was a date and on that date was the date that you had your transplant. As you're walking through the room it was very easy to see nobody had a date older than mine. It hit me there of how lucky I was to have gone through the process. And then I see how many people went afterwards. It was like it was an epiphany for me that, wow, you know, I have to be the luckiest person, not only in that room, but on the face of this earth. Because it was 2007 where I realized that one thing or the early transplant helped me and I was helping others. Now, you went into remission in the late 2000s, and why did you start at that time? Why did you decide to start fundraising for the MUHC Foundation? You know, it started off as a fluke, um, to be honest. The, uh, my, I have a great passion for golf. I played with my friends up until the day I was basically uh, diagnosed. We'd practice in the winter. Um, for the two years following the treatment, you know, you're, you're very weak. You can't do anything, and it takes two years for your body to recover. So um, my friends were very, very supportive of me. They didn't want to see me sit at home. They brought me along to the golf course. They said, Dan, just come along, hit a ball or two, ride in a cart, have fun with us. You know, we're talk like old times. So after the first day we did that, um, they decided to pass the hat around. They said, Dan, we, you know, it cost us a couple hundred bucks for lunch. We're going to match that. Why don't you take it and give it to a foundation or something to raise money um, uh, under your name? So that was the start of the idea. Um, we continued that for two, three years afterwards, very on an elementary basis. And, you know, it started with 16 and 32 people and then 48. And we weren't raising a lot of money, but it was something that we were giving back. It was grassroots. But in 2007, after that celebration of life, um, when I said it really hit me, I knew that we could, we have a good thing going here and we could take this to the next level. And as a grassroots opportunity with our friends, our community, we were able to develop a tournament um, 
that is, I, I'm going to say it is second to none. That has no corporate sponsorship. We're raising tons of money now, and it's it's all based on the people who are helping us support us um, throughout the whole year. How much have you raised so far, in total? In total, um, this year, if we would have had the event because of COVID, we expect it to go over a million dollars. Wow, that's incredible, Dan. It is. It, it's, it's something that started from a couple hundred dollars years ago. The last five, five to seven years, we've taken it to the next level, and we've been hitting eighty to 100000 110000 every year um, uh, without any type of sponsorship and just communities coming in. And it's a testament to the people that join us. We have people coming in from all over North America. Uh, some people come in from Europe because they believe in what we're doing. I have good contacts worldwide that believe in my story. They have the ability to give money to any foundation or any event they want, but they choose what we're doing because they believe in what we're doing. Now, you contributed again this year, Dan, to the cause. What we do did. You, what do you want to say to you, the people who've been supporting you all these years? I don't know what to say to them. It, it's from my heart. Um, they know that I believe in the cause. There's nothing that is more important to me than the drive for the cure besides my family the drive for the cure for me is an avenue to help other people i am the most private person that you would know but when it comes to this i'm out front and i'm out front to make sure that people understand they know the awareness for the need for money they know the awareness that we need to help others who are going through this so whether it's mentoring whether it's raising funds whether it's participating we have to show by example and this is my way of doing it. Dan Klimas, you are an incredible community leader, and we thank you so much for sharing your story and for everything that you've done to, to support other patients. Thank you, Julie. And we're going to continue this as long as I'm alive. I have one thing that I always say to the nurses, because I still, to this day, at the Royal Victoria or MUHC, I am na- named the candy man, because every <laughs> Christmas Eve, I show up and buy all that staff lunch and bring them candies for the whole year. And I said, I will do that until the day I die. So every year, I still support even that type of an operation. Thank you, Dan. And next on Health Matters, one in three Canadians now has diabetes or prediabetes. Are you at risk? I'm Julie Kenville, and this is Health Matters. Unless you personally know someone living with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, you may not know a lot about it. But cases of diabetes are on the rise in across North America. So what should you know about diabetes? Dr. George Fantis, clinician scientist, is also director of Division of Endocrinology and Metabolic at the MUHC. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Do you think, uh, Dr. Fantas, that there's enough awareness about diabetes? I think this, um, the awareness uh, question is improving. Uh, This is Diabetes Awareness Month, as you know, and uh, there are quite a few articles in the popular press and the media, uh, and that's been going on for several years now. So more and more people are becoming aware of the importance of diabetes. I think where where we fall down is more at the say at the individual level uh, in terms of diagnosis. So it's particularly true for type two diabetes. That's a diabetes that used to be called adult onset mm-hmm. and uh, occurs mostly in older individuals or at least individuals in, in their forties or fifties and so on and and older. Uh, the reason is that at the earliest stages, 
type 2 diabetes can be quite asymptomatic. In other words, there are no signs or symptoms of illness. And that can happen over many years. So people have looked at, for example, the number of years it takes to diagnose diabetes where more severe symptoms are noticed by the individual, and that's about seven years. So one could presumably have diabetes for a number of years before the diagnosis is actually made. So if there are no so symptoms, where... though, Dr. Fentis, how, how could we know whether our parents have uh, diabetes, for example? What should we be checking out for? Well, good question. So the, 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 par- the parental uh, story is just a matter of family history to know, to ask whether parents have had uh, diabetes or were diagnosed or were treated for diabetes with pills or insulin. But in terms of oneself, the best way to find out is to be screened by your family doctor. Now, that means one has to go to the family doctor. So those people uh, require motivation to make a trip to the family doctor. That's not always the case. And the second part is to have a family physician. One of the problems of our healthcare system here is that not everyone has a family physician, as you know. Uh, they're quite hard to get. Uh, here in Quebec, there's a waiting list which can take up to two years or more to find a family physician. And what is the frequency but, of the screening? The screening, that depends on the person. So there are various guidelines um, by the Canadian and the American Diabetes Associations or Diabetes Canada. And anybody over 40 should probably be screened perhaps every three years or so. Uh, But those people who are at higher risk, for example, should be screened earlier. So even teenagers who uh, are quite overweight or obese, in other words, more than about 85% uh, different than the average or above weight, than the average in the highest uh, weight categories, are at risk now of developing type 2 diabetes. We're seeing it earlier and earlier um, in age as opposed to previous generations. And that's felt largely to be a combination of uh, diet, um, being overweight, decreased physical activity. Are there certain certain medications as well, I mean, uh, that would put you more at risk of diabetes? There are some medications. There are not that many, but certainly some of the ones for mental health disorders um, that cause increased appetite and weight gain. And some young people in their 20s are on those medications for um, psychiatric illnesses. Uh, But in general, it's uh, very rampant in the population uh, to be overweight these days. Up to 30% of, of the population is actually uh, weighs too much. We, 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 we usually classify that as BMI or what's called body mass index, which is a way of measuring uh, your weight relative to your height. So it's a, a little equation. And if you're above 25, uh, that would mean you should be screened earlier for diabetes. 
Um, if you have a family history, for example, a first that's a first degree relative uh, with diabetes that you know of, then again, that's a sign of risk that you should be screened. There are other some other high risk groups, for example, um, Southeast Asians, Native Americans, or First Nations peoples, Hispanics, and African Americans, who are also seem to be at higher risk for developing type two diabetes. And also, certainly, uh, women with gestational diabetes, for example, the women who become pregnant, and uh, they're all screened for developing diabetes during the pregnancy. That's called gestational diabetes at about 22 weeks into the pregnancy. And that resolves usually after the baby is born. So, but those women... Uh, are at risk, at increased risk for developing diabetes and also should be screened uh, more frequently. And are they? Uh, yes, yes, they, they are. If they have a family doctor, uh, we screen them uh, several weeks, maybe eight weeks after the delivery, but then they should be followed and screened and encouraged if they are overweight to lose weight and so on. Now, you've spoken a lot about type 2 diabetes, but is type 1 diabetes also on the rise? It is. It is. It's perhaps not as much as type two in terms of uh, in terms of the amount. Uh, certainly, only ten or fifteen percent of people with diabetes have type one, which is more of an autoimmune disease, and it is on the rise. We don't know why exactly. Uh, people are studying that and trying to uh, to learn more about the immune mechanisms and. Um, the the immune responses and what actually triggers uh, that type of diabetes. What are some of the questions that are still remaining unanswered when it comes to type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Uh, well, there are quite a few, actually. Um, the in, in type 1, as we were talking about, the exact the triggers, the type of way that we might prevent progression. So there are signs there are things you can measure. There are factors that can be measured called antibodies uh, in the bloodstream, for example, of people who are predisposed uh, to getting type 1 or developing type 1 diabetes, but there are no good treatments yet for uh, stopping that process. So we still don't know exactly how to do that. Um, in general, in diabetes, there's still a challenge in uh, controlling the blood sugar perfectly. So we have a lot of technology that's been developed over the last 20 years uh, to help with uh, improvement in blood sugar control. There are various medications in type 2. There's insulin and insulin pumps and multiple daily injections. There are now apps and, and um equipment for continuous blood glucose monitoring, which are very helpful to prevent low blood sugar, for example, and keep people at a very high blood sugar. But we still have a hard time, and particularly uh, this is important when we think of diabetes in the global context. So all these new apps and, and technological innovations uh, are expensive and obviously can't be rolled out that easily across the world. 
So there will be millions and millions of people with uh, imperfect blood sugar control. So what that means is that those people are still prone to developing the complications of diabetes, Mm -hmm. which are caused by the higher blood glucose. Dr. George Fentis, thank you so much for informing your listeners about diabetes and, and, of course, for joining us on Health Matters. Oh, you're very welcome. Coming up, we continue our discussion on diabetes. How has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted diabetic patients and how are they managing? I'm Julie Kenville and you're listening to Health Matters. We continue our discussion on diabetes as November is Diabetes Awareness Month. Many diabetic patients have to manage their treatments themselves. They're checking their blood sugar, injecting insulin. It almost takes a degree just to be able to manage your uh, diabetes. So how has COVID-19 pandemic impacted how these patients are managing their diabetes? Dr. Kaberi Gupta is a physician and a researcher. She is a professor of medicine at McGill University. She's also director of the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation at the Research Institute of the MUHC. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Julie. Can you tell us a little bit, how has the pandemic impacted our diabetic patients? Well, I think it certainly has been um, a reminder that when you have diabetes uh, overall, um, your your health is at greater risk. And people with diabetes, if they do get COVID, um, tend to, to, to get it uh, fairly severely and are at higher risk of being hospitalized, needing oxygen. Um, so that that is quite frightening for people uh, with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and it means that they have to be very vigilant, wear masks when outdoors, uh, respect the, dis- the social distancing, the physical distancing, uh, wash their hands, and, and, and it, it is quite stressful for sure. How has the pandemic affected your own life and, and your work as well? Well, if if I turn to the whole area of managing my patients with diabetes, it's changed dramatically. Uh, nowadays, a lot of our visits are by telephone, um, and uh, uh, while that can be convenient in one sense, uh, we do miss seeing one another. So we're we're adapting to a new reality, and uh, I think it's been a reminder for many of us that all of the the, the new technological tools that are emerging could be great great assets in diabetes care, but they do need to be available universally. So it means um, everyone equipped with a home blood pressure monitor, certainly their glucometer, uh, digital weighing scales, having access to video teleconferencing to be able to participate in Zoom. So what we've noticed is that even though all of those great new technologies are, 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 have great potential, uh, right now, the way our system is structured, telephone follow-ups are much easier to, uh, to launch than, other, than, than using Zoom. Um, so I think we as a, as a society and our organizations of our health systems, we need to provide that access um, to the, 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 the tools we need to be able to deliver good care remotely. Now, you're working on some really exciting research. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about it? Definitely. So the the study that we're about to launch soon is very interesting because it's about type 2 diabetes reversal. 
So that means trying to cure type 2 diabetes. Um, and this is a study that's funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research that uh, I'm leading in Canada uh, and in partnership with uh, my colleague Tom Yates at the University of Leicester in the UK, where the Medical Research Council is funding um, uh, that side of the, the pond. And basically, we will be recruiting um, young adults with type 2 diabetes who are less than 40, not on insulin, have had it for less than six years, and we're going to be looking to see if we can cure their diabetes with an intensive program of um, weight management and supervised exercise. The weight management involves using meal replacement products, a very low, uh, a rather low calorie diet uh, in combination with supervised exercise. And it's been shown, the diet alone has been shown in the UK to be able to reverse um, type 2 diabetes at, in 30% of people after in, in two, over a period of two years, uh, that is, it's sustained over uh, two years, the effect. Uh, what we're doing is we're adding the exercise part, uh, and we're, you know, really interested to see how many people are interested, how many people are able to, to participate in the intervention, and if um, we, we observe uh, a strong difference between the people who um, participate in the, the, the meal replacement plan and the exercise versus the control arm um, who will have their usual care, but at the end of the six-month period will then be able to take part in the, in the diet as well. So this is a new concept that's emerging in type 2 diabetes, um, and uh, it's quite exciting to be part of that. So that's one of uh, a few studies that we're doing. Um, another study that we're doing um, speaks a bit to the technologies I was telling you about, and that is a trial um, in uh, women with gestational diabetes. It's funded by the Lawson Foundation, and we're basically trying to help them uh, adopt healthier behaviors to have healthier pregnancies. Um, and so all of them get access to a wonderful uh, website with resources, with recipes, um, with tips on eating and exercising. But uh, a group also receives um, pedometers or step counters and digital scales, uh, and they're able to monitor their weight and monitor their steps. And that information um, is uh, loaded onto a, 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 an electronic platform, and the platform sig signals to them if their steps are dropping, if they're not achieving, um, uh, uh, maintaining or increasing their step counts, if their weight is out of, the weight gain is out of the, um, the range that would be optimally healthy for them. Uh, and then the, the, another group is getting health coaching by telephone, and a final group is getting both the health coaching and the e-platform. So we're basically exploring different ways that we can help uh, women optimize what they eat, how they eat, um, how active they are during pregnancy in order to have um, the, the healthiest possible outcome for themselves and their children. So that's quite, quite fun. Um, to see them, to respond to these interventions, to see what they prefer, um, and to help guide us in terms of what services eventually we should uh, we should be offering people. What are some of the the challenges that you face when you're launching such an important uh, research trial? I think the biggest challenge is that. Um, we can have great ideas. We often uh, 
plan them with patients who've, who've lived with these conditions and, and, and help us with that. But one of the challenges remains that um, for every uh, five people that we would approach to join a study, maybe two will accept or, or one out of four. And I think what happens oftentimes is while people recognize the importance of managing and preventing diabetes with health behavior changes to their physical activity, their diet, their sleep, we often feel overwhelmed in our day-to-day life and it can be challenging to take on um, something something new and to, to sort of have to uh, reconfigure our lives a bit. Um, so I think that is is always a challenge is getting people on board but when people are when people do reach out for studies like this they should bear in mind that they will have a, a support system to help them make the changes and that's why these are designed so really the challenge you know in in women who are pregnant they have so many things to think about they may not want to think about eating and sleeping well and exercising or being more active but at the end of the day that is actually a critical aspect of managing gestational diabetes or managing type 2 diabetes. And so, you know, if they can get the, the, the family supports to, to kind of help them, uh, uh, it would be really, it would be terrific. But uh, we do recognize the challenges people face in day-to-day life for sure. Well, Dr. Kiberi de Gupta, thank you so much for joining us on Health Matters, and we wish you good luck on those uh, important research trials. Thank you so much, Julie. A real pleasure. I'm Julie Kenville, and thank you for tuning in. Please share your ideas for the show. Write to me at healthmatters at muhcfoundation.com. You can also follow us on social media. Find the MUHC Foundation on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday. Thanks for listening and stay healthy.